Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the ninth day of September 2021. As I promised, I am now moving on from the basic biochemistry that we've been enjoying over the last three or four episodes and moving back into the discrete nature of aging and its association with the immune system. I'm going to, of course, encapsulate all of this in a series of video lectures, but I want to cover some ground in the audio versions because I think it's an important prolegomena for us to be able to um, result in a, an acquired understanding of how I see aging and ultimately its causes and its effects uh, in biological systems. So what I want to do today is um, reinstate our understanding of epigenetics and associate that with aging and also bring up a couple of new uh, understandings of the mechanisms of epigenetics before we uh, dive into it more discreetly by discussing specific uh, genetic expression levels associated with epigenetic modifications uh, that are associated with those with uh, traditional canonical mechanisms as well as some of the more elaborated uh, new uh, examples of those mechanisms. So paper was published in Stem Cells International back in 2020, which was not that long ago, I guess just about a year ago, this came out last summer. And what I gained from it is the following. And this is something that I've been learning over the years since I first taught an aging course in a graduate uh, school. My suggestion is that aging is both necessary and universal in humans. Heterotrophic, multicellular organisms in general that reproduce by sexual reproduction cannot survive somatically. And since they do not reproduce via cell division, sensu-stricto, that is, nor do they generate new organ systems from simple mitotic division. In the human, we are essentially terminally differentiated, except during tissue repair and, of course, the unfortunate occasion of oncogenesis. So, as I see it, the unidirectional sequence of lifespan is measured as a cellular and what I call physio-biochemical system. And there's senescence there that is bounded by genomic and tailored immunologically via epigenetic mechanisms, defining a temporal alteration of transcription factors, lipid, and indeed protein-based signaling trafficking patterns. And associated with that always membrane dynamics and bioenergetic pathways determining the episodic and then the final terminal cellular fate. So physiological aging results from incremental organ damage and failure, increased susceptibility to diseases and environmental stress and the response to that environmental stress. And of course, what we might describe as more of a stochastic plenum of mutation and epimutation, oxidative and oxygenated degradation pathways collectively understood as a pathobiochemical morbidity, 
which then passes on to pathophysiological response. So aging, and especially unhealthy temporal decline, associated obesity are primary risk factors in the major human diseases that ultimately progress towards death, even at earlier ages. It's one of my theses. Major human diseases that chronically accelerate during aging toward death include, of course, cardiovascular disease, cancer, neurodegeneration, and then this host and plenum of metabolic disorders, some of which are associated with the autoimmune disease uh, syndromes. There has been an increasing effort to uncover the role of the epigenetic mechanisms in both chronological aging and, of course, in cellular senescence. Epigenetic changes are rendered via environmental stress. And that stress, as we've been talking many times uh, in Authentic Biochemistry and also on my YouTube channel, are both internal and they are external. And I've described numerous times in lecture they will involve lipid fluidity, histone modifications, DNA methylation, acetylation, small non-coding RNA expression, chromatin remodeling itself, nucleosome positioning, and of course, at the larger level, tissue-specific gene expression working through both a plastic and elastic molecular mechanism. Protein and DNA methylation is the common covalent epigenetic biochemical process, as are, of course, the histone signatures of lysine methylation, arginine methylation, lysine acetylation, and serine phosphorylation, which, of course, also is associated with allosteric. Now, all these modifications alter the extent to which DNA is wrapped around histones, and that then results in an alteration in the availability of a gene within the DNA to be recombined, replicated, repaired, or indeed transcribed. So there may well be a unique role for DNA methylation in aging, and that's something we're going to try to talk about today and in the next few lectures. Now, I want to bring your attention to the pro-opio-melanocortin gene. And I want to tell you that when ultraviolet light strikes keratinocytes, that is skin cells, it will activate a particular transcription factor known as P53. We've heard of this transcription factor before. It's involved in cell cycle. Now, P53 <laughs> will turn on transcription of the gene encoding the POMC. That is, again, the pro-opio-melanocortin polyprotein expressing gene. Cleavage of that POMC protein produces one specific polypeptide called alpha-melanocortin-stimulating hormone, or alpha-MSH. Now, that particular protein is secreted from the cell and stimulates nearby melanocytes, thus it's a paracrine effect, right, to synthesize melanin in packets called melanosomes. The melanosomes are transferred to the skin cells where they form a protective cap over the nucleus, thus protecting the DNA from UV damage, you understand. In fact, this cap helps protect that DNA within the nucleus from the damaging effects of ultraviolet radiation. Now, we have ACTH, which is another polypeptide from the POMC backbone, 
This is also secreted into the blood and may help reduce skin inflammation by stimulating ultimately the release of glucocorticoids, and this all coming from the adrenal cortex. We also get beta endorphins from POMC, and they probably are involved in the suppression of pain of sunburn, all of which then you see cohere during the expression of the proteins after proteolytic or convertase-mediated um, production of those proteins from the POMC polyprotein complex. So this MSH, besides melanogenesis, endogenous melanocortin receptor agonists are also involved in feeding homeostasis, body mass, and indeed the inflammation responses associated with the immune system. Indeed, low levels of alpha-MSH may suggest a reduction in the control over the inflammation of the neuroendocrine axis. This is therefore affecting energy status, digestion, and even biological whole homeostasis because of the nutritional dietary component. So anti-MSH antibodies have actually been detected in model systems because these antibodies are glycoproteins that are generated from plasma cells, right? All originally from B cell lineages. So there are other proteins involved in this pathway that work against the alpha MSH, and that is the neuropeptide Y in the agudo, excuse me, agouti-related protein. And that's a specific axis along with the entire POMC circuit. So we can go way back to earlier papers published at around 2002 to start picking up on this, but there are autoantibodies against the alpha MSH, ACTH, and the luteinizing hormone releasing hormone. And all of those have been detected in both anorexic and bulimic nervosa patients. So this gives you the idea about the feeding aspect of it, right? Now, <clears throat> paper that was published very recently, uh, January of this year, actually, in the journal called Aging, talks about melanogenesis and tells us, of course, that melanin is produced in melanocytes, as we just said, and subsequently the melanin is transferred to adjacent keratinocytes. These would be your basic skin cells. And that process of synthesis and then transfer is regulated by two factors, uh, that is two mechanistic factors, and one's known as intrinsic and one's known as extrinsic. So you have extrinsic factors like UV radiation, and then intrinsic, you have autocrine, paracrine, inflammatory, and neuronal stimulation. The neuronal, which just came from that POMC pathway, I just mentioned briefly. So the alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, or alpha MSH, is one of the intrinsic factors that will be involved in stimulating, among other things, the feeding cycle coming from the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus and melanogenesis. So when that, when that peptide, alpha-MSH, binds to a specific receptor, known as melanocortin-1 receptor, or MC1R, 
the alpha MSH, now ligand bound to its receptor, will activate, of course, the cyclic AMP protein kinase A. Yes, indeed, that's the same pathway we were talking about in the regulation of carbohydrate metabolism. Think fructose uh, and think about glucose metabolism, particularly phosphofructokinases 1 and 2 and the entire glucose cascade leading either to through glycolysis to pyruvate or gluconeogenesis. Also glycogen metabolism being regulated by the same cyclic AMP generated from adenylate cyclase, protein kinase A, phosphorylation cascade systems. We also talked last time about how that is linked to the CREB pathway. Now, that is the cyclic AMP response element binding protein. And remember, it binds then and reacts to chromatin that has cyclic AMP response elements or CRE elements, which are generally promoter regions of genes. Remember, one of them we talked about um, was, was important with uh, glycolysis and gluconeogenesis because one of the CRE promoter regions that CREB will bind to because of cyclic AMP mediated responses as associated with alpha MSH is the PEP carboxykinase gene, which of course will lead to the synthesis of glucose from non-glucose sources, right? And that's the transcription of that gene regulated that way. Now, that same CREB pathway also promotes the expression of what are known as microthelema associated transcription factor or MITF. So this MITF, actually, that gene, okay, stimulates tyrosinase transcription. And that, in turn, when that is transcribed and translated, the tyrosinase protein will upregulate, of course, melanin biosynthesis because melanin is generated from tyrosine, the L-tyrosine amino acid. Now, this leads us into a discussion of epigenetics. Now we've talked about methylation acetylation. I, I mentioned many times sumoylation. Right? We also talked about non-coding RNA. This paper is dealing directly with that non-coding RNA. And it reminds us something we've talked about many, many, many times in authentic biochemistry, um, that when you look at the human genome, and it's not unlike other genomes that are eukaryotic, um, less than 2% of the total genome, much less, maybe more like about 1.1% in most uh, derivative discussions of it, code for proteins, right? The rest of the DNA, some 98 to 99% of the DNA that you find in chromatin in humans does not code for polypeptides. You don't get DNA RNA to protein from them. So what is, that, what is all that DNA doing? Well, is any of it, the rest of it, involved in the human transcriptome? Actually, most of it is not involved in the human transcriptome. We've talked about intervening sequences and, and uh, gene targeting and domain shuffling in association with the evolution and expression of genes that are linked together to form composite polypeptide pathways and integrating systems that regulate oxidative phosphorylation um, and the whole biosynthesis and degradation of lipids. Those two come to mind. So what about the non-coding RNA? All of this DNA that does not involve 
RNA biosynthesis, that is RNA biosynthesis, the level of transcription. So the RNA can be made from that DNA, but it doesn't get further processed. You have RNA, but it's non-coding. And that would be a component of, again, the human transcriptome, right? So non-coding or NCRNAs are really bizarre in that they actually show when they are transcribed, because you have to transcribe RNA, right? They actually demonstrate a higher tissue specificity and metabolic zonation as compared to all the protein coding canonical messenger RNA. So that's pretty fascinating. So that means in this paper uh, exemplifies this discussion, there must be some very critical function of this non-coding RNA. And we need to understand it in terms of the aging process. So within this kind of RNA that's non-coding, there is long non-coding RNA called link RNA or LNC RNA. There's circular RNA. And of course, there's, there's what we've been talking about a great deal lately is micro RNA. Those actually all have a function and are all part of the non-coding RNAs. They just don't make polypeptide, but they have plenty of function. And they're involved in the regulation of many, many, many systems in biological systems, uh, uh, biological pathways, excuse me. So, of course, the microRNA have been well described to inhibit translation of target messenger RNA. And we've described this, right? So we have microRNA response elements. Those are MRE, MREs. We have microRNAs that bind to multiple types of RNA. And because of that, we have different types of RNA that can bind to the same microRNA through differing or sometimes similar MREs, that is microRNA response elements. And so what you can form are these hybrid polymers of RNA, such as having a microRNA, a messenger RNA, circular RNA combination, a long non-coding RNA, microRNA and mRNA uh, constellation condensation product, and so all of these together and the different combinations you might guess, plus the ones we've yet to, to have discovered, could be put under a general rubric of competitive endogenous RNA. And that's what this paper is talking about. So put all those RNAs together in non-coding that can form complexes that may associate with inhibiting or relating to the expression of messenger RNA. Okay, And we're going to now call them CE RNAs or competitive endogenous, right? And they can form a circuit that may regulate entire pathways and systems. In fact, they could control physiological or pathophysiological processes. And again, some of these have been described. There is one such long non-coding RNA that functions as a CERNA that's been described in thyroid cancer, right? And there's also one that's been discovered in hepatocellular carcinoma. I won't give you the details of those. If you want the details, you can look at the paper. I'll put the paper in the show notes. That is a direct citation of it. Now, you also have a urothelial cancer-associated one LNC RNA, and this seems to regulate melanogenesis and melanocytes. So 
what is asked when you look at this uh, system, is there any other RNA, non-coding RNA, that may be associated with controlling melanogenesis? And if it's controlling melanogenesis, what's the transcript that's being controlled? So this particular paper, which I'm not going to go into detail with here, but I will when I do the uh, video lecture, because it's a really stimulating, interesting bit of new information about non-coding RNA. I just give you a little hint that the target messenger RNA for some of these CE RNAs that are associated with controlling melanogenesis, the target for that is the mRNA, which is associated with that portion of the POMC gene transcript that links up to alpha MSH, okay, alpha MSH. Now, <clears throat> I want to now slip into a little bit about the immune system here because this is all associated. Now, we know that there are immunoglobulins, particularly IgGs, that are that not only carry out the function of um, interacting with complement to remove epitopic signatures associated with potential pathogens, such as bacterial, viral, fungal pathogens. IgGs also interfere with, with signal transduction cascades. And one of the signal transduction cascades that's inhibited by certain IgGs is in the central nervous system, and it's the melanocortin circuitry, particularly the melanocortin luteinizing hormone system. It also seems, these IgGs also may play a role in peripheral sites relevant to food intake regulation. So that is, we've got antibodies now. So we just I just told you about the <clears throat> non-coding RNA regulating alpha-MSH. Now I'm telling you that the immune system and the production of the glycoproteins known as immunoglobulins or antibodies also play a role in controlling alpha-MSH levels, okay? And it's believed that this could be a further association with the pathophysiology and clinical presentation of anorexia and bulimia nervosa, okay? Now, and that's because it's been detected in humans. IgGs against alpha-MSH has been detected in the serum of people who have either anorexia or bulimia. So that's an important component of this whole discussion, right? Now, I want to remind you that the processing of the POMC all occurs in the anterior lobe of the pituitary in humans. So you have these protein convertases that first take the pro-opiomelanocortin and convert to the polypeptide, convert it to the pro-ACTH, which is then further processed by two other protein convertases. These are basically endoproteases. And it makes the NPOMC proline gamma MSH, the JP protein, the ACTH protein, and the beta LPH protein, lipotropin, excuse me. Now, the further processing from the pituitary can also occur in the hypothalamus. Now, that's in the pituitary, but you also get this processing in the hypothalamus and also in the pars intermedia of the pituitary. And this is, again, you have one protease, pro, uh, protein convertase that will make 
pro-ACTH. So you even have differential proteolytic regulation depending on where you are in the central nervous system, okay? So when you make a pro-ACTH in the hypothalamus, for example, or also in the skin where melanogenesis occurs, don't you know, you will once again make pro-POMC, proline gamma MSH. That's one protein. You make this, which will be further processed to the gamma 3 MSH, which has its own function, which we can talk about later. You also get from those early convertases, the JP protein, the ACTH protein, and the beta LPH protein. Now, the ACTH protein is further proteolytically modified to make authentic ACTH, amino acids 1 through 17, and the so-called CLIP protein, which we've talked about a little bit in past uh, lectures, and we won't discuss further here. But one more processing, once again, from a proteolytic uh, pro uh, pathway, will yield the NAT or DA-alpha-MSH, and that's a modified protein, and that final modified protein will then be uh, sorted out to make alpha MSH. So you have gamma MSH, alpha MSH, and indeed from the gamma LPH proteolytic degradation, you make one more of beta MSH. So you have alpha MSH, beta MSH, and gamma MSH. Each one of those have differential functions, but they're all basically melanocortin-stimulating hormone, right? And so you're going to have certain tissue specificity of where they're expressed, and also you're going to have completely different functions. And the functions are really based on the receptors, right? So <clears throat> real quickly now, I want you to understand this. There's a leptin melanocortin pathway. Leptin, of course, is generated from the adipose tissue. And what happens here is that this pathway will trigger a response in POMC neurons. So when you're thinking about, first of all, the paraventricular nucleus and the arcuate nucleus, you have leptin binding to its receptor, and it's going to stimulate the synthesis of alpha MSH, which then, al then in this process and the arcuate nucleus will bind to the melanocortin-4 receptor. And that's going to occur, again, I just mentioned in the paraventricular nucleus, and that will give you a satiety signal. So leptin from the visceral fat going to the arcuate nucleus and then ultimately making alpha MSH at the arcuate nucleus because it bound to the leptin receptor. Leptin bound to its receptor, generate alpha MSH. Alpha MSH now bind to MC4R in the paraventricular nucleus. And this is going to result in a satiety signal. There's also a separate group of neurons expressing the neuropeptide Y and the agouti-related protein. And they're also going to respond to leptin but they act as potent inhibitors of the melanocortin-4 receptor signaling. So there's several other proteins involved, SIM1, um, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, the TKRB protein, and all of those particular functions we can talk about later. Okay, So you get the idea that this is a major locus of the control of feeding stimulation. And we already told you that alpha-MSH in the skin is involved in melanogenesis. So you get the idea that if there is a 
epigenetic response to controlling the actual levels of circulating alpha MSH full stop, both at the level we just mentioned to you about all this RNA, this non-coding RNA, and then at the level of IgG responding to circulating levels of alpha MSH. We are now combining both the immune response and the epigenetic systems to the expression of a gene that comes from the central nervous system after induction from visceral fat. And all of that, that whole system I just mentioned to you now, those three major systems, the immune system, the central nervous system, and the nutritional aspects of both intake and then processing of nutritional requirements, starting first in the gut and then moving through to stimulate what's going on in the brain, either indirectly via visceral fat or directly coming from the small intestine. All of that is one of the component macro systems that begins to decay when people age. Okay. And a lot of that has to do with the epigenetic profiling as well as the immune profiling on that one central locus. And that's the POMC locus and particularly the alpha MSH protein that's generated from it. There's more to say here. There's a lot more to say here about it, but I'm just giving you a little taste of where I want to go with our grand finale of discussing aging, um, the immune system and epigenetic profiling that occurs as humans age, ultimately leading to multiple morbidities and then death. So uh, with that note, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios reporting to you because I have nothing better to do on the ninth day of the ninth month of 2021. Dan Guerra saying bye for now. <laughs>